Greetings from Dunhart. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> God's country. <laughs> I know. The whole world's the Lord's. <laughs> Whether they'll acknowledge it or not. We're in Matthew 21. Um, Matthew 21, this is one of the most glorious moments in the ministry of Jesus because it's the unveiling of Christ as the Messiah. Now, the name Christ, so we say Jesus Christ, Christ is his title. It's an office. It means Messiah, which means anointed one. So in the Old Testament, there were like three primary offices that if you took the office, you'd be anointed with oil. And those were the prophet, the priest, and the king. So when you became king, they pour oil on you. When you become a prophet, they pour oil on you. When you became a priest or high priest, they pour oil on you. And the oil was signifying God's anointing, God's empowering of you to fulfill that office. But then as the Old Testament progresses, we begin to see that Every anointed king ends up falling short of being like the, the king you'd want him to be. And every prophet was pointing forward to like some forward moment, some coming prophet. And every priest was, in a sense, pointing to another priest because every prophet talked about things to come. And every priest had to sacrifice animals year after year after year because the atonement of sin had not been completed yet. So it all pointed towards this one person, this one empowered by God to set the world right, right in the word, the Messiah, the Christ. And then if you recall in the book of Matthew, and we've been in it a long time, so it's kind of hard to kind of pull big things together, but Jesus, for the most part, has been hiding his identity as a Messiah. He knows he's the Messiah. He came, he's doing the works of the Messiah, but when people acknowledge that he's Messiah, he paid, you know, to put it in uh, modern parlance, keep it on the lowdown. Don't be telling people that I'm the Messiah. And so, it's, so um, theologians, they call it the messianic secret, that he was keeping it a secret. And the demons would say, you're the son of God. He said, be quiet. When, when Peter says, you are the Messiah, he says, don't tell anybody. Why? Because there was a lot of cultural expectation of what the Messiah was going to do. Israel, at this moment, Israel is just, it's not a good time for Israel. And they're looking forward to the fact that one day God is going to usher in his final and his permanent kingdom, that he's going to purge Israel of pagan invaders. And in some sense, they're right, but they just had incomplete expectations. They didn't have the full view of what God was going to do through the Messiah. So though these expectations were not in and of themselves wrong, it was just partial, it was limited, and the timing was off. And the concern seems to be if all these people figured out that Jesus is the Messiah, then they would, as a sense, try to rally and push him to be something that he was not going to do. And you even see this as people are now realizing the Messiah, there's things that he wants them to do, and he's just not going to do. But this gave him three years to do his ministry. 
and as a kind of twist, if Jesus ever reveals to someone his messianic identity, it was to the lowly and to the outcast. It was for those who knew they needed God's help and were not going to leverage God for his gain. So you think, you know, in John 4, the woman at the well. He was finally going to know he was the Messiah. And he let her go tell the Samaritans that he was the Messiah. But to Israel, far and away, his messianic identity has, has, has been a secret. But now, Jesus is bursting onto the scenes of Jerusalem. It's, it's the Passover. So all, all these Jewish people are coming from all over the Roman Empire, coming to Israel to worship God on this holy day. And Jesus is coming, and there's all this built-up expectation that this prophet from Galilee, who's done all these miracles and all these teachings, who've been taking on the religious establishment, who've been leading people astray, and he's coming to Jerusalem. And so when he comes, he comes riding as a king, as a conquering king on a donkey. And he's and his messianic identity at this point is pretty much presumed and proven. In this passage in Matthew, it's scripture upon scripture upon scripture upon scripture. It is a saturated moment of scripture, as if Matthew wants to remind you this did not occur in a vacuum. All the Old Testament was pointing to this moment. Jesus rides in the donkey, and they cry, Hosanna. Son of David. In other words, save us, King. And now he's going to go into the temple and he's going to clear it of false worship. And he's consumed with anger because of the false worship. And he is acting as the priest. And then in the next scene, which we'll get to next week, he pronounces judgment on Jerusalem through the fig tree, where he curses the fig tree and then they come back and it dies. He's acting as the prophet. He's the king. He's the priest. He's the prophet. He is the Messiah. Matthew does not want you to miss the glory of that moment. He does not want you to miss the glory of Jesus. So we're going to look specifically at the second part, Jesus as a priest who comes to cleanse the temple of false worship. So verse 12. And it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So we'll stop there for a moment. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he sees all these markets in the temple. Now we know from records of that time that there's all these Jewish people coming from like Timbuktu to far corners of the Roman Empire and they're coming to Israel. And like bringing a cow with you is not necessarily going to be convenient. You can get on ships or you can go on these caravans. And so you packed what you needed to get there. But like dragging your sacrifice across the Roman Empire is probably not going to be convenient. 
So what they did instead is that they'd have markets. So you just bring money, and then when you got to Jerusalem, then you'd buy a sacrificial animal, then you'd go and sacrifice it. And um, there may have been profiteering off of this, you know, you know, if these people are desperate, they need a sacrifice, they travel all this way. It's classic, like, you know, tourist trap. You, know, you want you want the, like, little cool mug. Well, you're not going to pay a standard mug price. You're going to pay a little bit more because you, you need it and they know it. And so the, there's a chance that there's some profiteering going on. Um, we kind of get this from the fact that he calls them a den of robbers, like not flattering. So there may be some injustice going on. <clears throat> and so that may be a reason, but there's something a bit more innocuous about what's been going on. So, so rabbinical records from that time tell us that this market used to exist outside of Jerusalem. So as you're walking up to Jerusalem, on your way into Jerusalem, you buy your animal. Well, recently, the high priest Caiaphas had moved it into the temple into the place of worship. The temple has like different layers to it. So if you're a Gentile, you can go into the first court, but you can't go into the second court, and, and so on. Like you, you have to, you know, by the time, if you want to get into the inner court, you have to be the priest, and if you want to go holy of holies, you have to be a high priest. So the Gentiles are allowed to like sit on the periphery and worship God. And Caiaphas just decided like, let's put it in the courts of the Gentiles. So he took this market with cows and sheep and lambs and pigeons and doves, like all the sounds of animals and then all the sounds of people and money changers and all this stuff going on. And he moves it smack into the place of worship for the Gentiles. So if you were a God-fearing Gentile and you made the trip to Jerusalem for the Passover, where were you to worship? Because in the courts of Gentile, there's literally nowhere to pray. At least not conveniently. So whether or not it was a deliberate move from the priests, they had make it, made it a completely unwelcome place for Gentile worshipers to join in. To join in. And this filled Jesus with anger. It's notable. It's the scriptures that he uses to condemn them. So said that Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold the pigeons. And for one man, that's quite the accomplishment. You ever go to Pike's Market in Seattle and they have like just like all these money? It's like someone going through and clearing out the whole thing single-handedly. You know, some people said, well, maybe he cleared out a corner. Well, that's not what it said. It said he cleared the whole thing out. I mean, if it was you and me, it probably wouldn't work. But if it's the Son of God who spoke with authority, who spoke to the storm and it stopped, who told the dead to rise and they did, who tells demons to flee and they would, if Jesus comes over and flips your table and tells you to leave, you just do it. And so then he uses two scriptures to explain. So here's the first one. He said to them, it is written, quote, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you, a house of prayer, end quote, but you, quote, have made it a den of robbers, end quote. 
<clears throat> the first of these passages comes from Isaiah 56. So, hold your finger in Matthew. Let's turn to Isaiah 56. Isaiah is broken in part one, part two. Part one, you have sinned, you have sinned, you have sinned, judgment is coming. Part two, but I will restore you. And, and there's like this future expectation that worship will be restored to Israel. And this is part of part two. So this is like coming, like this is the part, if you were a Jew at the time of Jesus, you'd be reading this and saying, I'm looking forward to that day, I'm looking forward to that day. And even in a sense, we still wait for the full accomplishment of the second end of Isaiah. So Isaiah 56. So thus says the Lord, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. Okay? Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord, say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who would choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons or daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So in other words, God is not just going to save Israel. He's going to save the Gentiles. Those who have hereunto been enemies to God, those who have been cut off from God, he is going to let them into his worship. Let them offer the sacrifices and pray in his house. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And here are the priests saying, only the Jews. His second quote, but you make it a den of robbers, um, comes from Jeremiah 7. We'll turn to that in a second. But first of all, I want to just let you know the word robbers really, I mean, I guess it kind of has a sense of like, ugh, to it, like the moral apprehension you'd have to hear the word robbers. But, you know, cops and robbers, it's kind of like, it's kind of, they're like pirates. They're, they're like these are the people, like you've made it a den of the people who hide out in the wilderness when like a family's going by, you jump out, and you kill and murder the people, take their goods, and take off. Like, these are not good people. 
is not just like petty theft. This is this is violence. Violence. I forget the word. Bad. <laughs> and he's like, so you basically made a little country club of murderers and thieves. So this comes from Jeremiah 7. Let's turn there. Verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So in the temple. So stand in the gates of the Lord's house and proclaim there his words. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if truly, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing these abominations. Has this house which has been called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You've come in your wickedness, and you act as if you worship me, and then you leave and act in your wickedness as if nothing's changed. You are not my worshipers. But the kick is, now get this, that Jesus is saying this to and about seemingly morally upright citizens. These are not like in-your-face robbers, in-your-face adulterers, in-your-face idol worshipers. These are not. These are like the priests. These are like the morally superior people of the society, good, honest, salt-of-the-earth people who bring their families into worship, the priests, the pastors, the guy who leads people in the worship, and Jesus says, robbers, the lot of them. Because the fact is, Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus did not come down to have his blood spilled on the cross because you're okay. Because you're not okay. And then it says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. This is the last time Matthew mentions healing. From this point, it's teaching and then he dies on the cross and then rises again. But here's Jesus in the temple. He's purging it of false worship. And then he's turning to those who are broken, the outcasts, the meek, the ones that know they're not okay. And they come to him as their only option, and he heals them. Do not miss the glory of that moment. Do not miss the glory of Jesus who comes in judgment to attack your false worship 
but would heal you if you would submit to him. If we think we're okay, if we think we've got it put together, if we see ourselves as morally superior people living up to a superior moral code, then what Jesus is getting at right now is scandalous. What we see in the reaction of the priests, the Sadducees, would be our very reaction because look at what happens next. It says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and of nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And then leaving them, he went out of the city of Bethany and lodged there. These priests, these priests, they belong to a religious social group called the Sadducees. And up to this point, most of Jesus' conflict with religious people has been the Pharisees. And now he's come to, well, Pharisees because they're all over the nation of Israel. Now he's going to the Sadducees because they are at the, like, Washington, D.C. of Israel. They're in Jerusalem. These are like the cultural elites. And at this point in history, they're led by this man. I already mentioned his name. His name is Caiaphas. He's been the high priest for 18 years, pretty much all of Jesus' adult life. And at this moment, the high priests have it pretty good. So, Old Testament ends with, and the last book, Malachi. Okay. And then, Matthew. And between that, it's like a couple hundred years of events that happen. Malachi says, look forward to the one who's coming. And then silence. And hardship. We're going into Christmas, right? And so there's like this great expectation. <clears throat> so me, so here's, here's a rough breakdown of what happened those 300 years. People came and started kicking Israel around a whole lot. Alexander the Great came and was great, but then he died with no kids. And so who gets the land when, you know, someone doesn't have the kids? Well, the general said, me, 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 me. So then they ended up breaking up Alexander's empire And two generals in particular, one was in the south, one was in the north of Israel, and they just got in this fight. It's called the Syrian War, and they had six wars where they went back and forth with each other, and guess who's stuck in the middle? Israel. (laughs) So they're like getting conquered, then getting reconquered, and then getting conquered, then getting reconquered. It happened six times, and it was bad. And they were really looking forward to like God bringing his king who's going to stop all the wars. Now, the Jews hated being under foreign rule because they were God's chosen people. They're expecting God's kingdom who's going to rule the earth. And so at various points, they would have these upstart revolutionaries who say they'd pick up the sword and say, I trust God's promises. We're going to overthrow the you know, current king who's in charge of them. And it never went well. And it especially did not go well for the priests. Okay, because if you don't have a king, and they often didn't, they get like vassal governors. The next best thing you have is your priests. Like, they can't replace your priests. Your high priest is the closest thing you have to a king that you could ever have. So when a, you know, when you start a revolution and the people come and squash a revolution, the people who get the brunt of it are the priests and the high priests. And at various times when they're being conquered and reconquered, for the most part, it's like, yeah, 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 you can worship your God, we don't care. 
But sometimes said, we don't want you worshiping our God. We really do care. This one guy tried to make the temple of Yahweh into the temple of Zeus, and he sacrificed pigs on the altar, and they killed priests on the altar. And it was a bloodshed. No matter what's happened, anytime foreign powers have come into power, the priests get the worst of it. They would be systematically and publicly tortured in front of everybody. Now fast forward, after Alexander Great, after a bunch of war and instability, in comes Rome. And Rome starts like stabilizing everything. And do you remember that, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, Cleopatra? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Julius Caesar gets assassinated, and people say, we're out of here. King is dead. We're going to create our own nations. And then um, Octavius, Julius, what's this, Augustus, says, I don't think so, and goes to start reconquering everybody. Cleopatra and Mark Antony said, they're in Egypt, they say, we're out of here. And this little, and so Rome starts trying to conquer, and this little, a name that's not big in history, but it's certainly big in the Bible, Herod the Great, was alive at the same time. He said, <clears throat> oh, king of Rome, I'll side with you. I'm summarizing. I'll side with you. So he goes, he sides against Cleopatra and against Mark Antony. He says, you make me king, I'll stabilize this region, we won't rebel. Caesar says, sounds great, you're king. Get this, Herod is an Edomite. He is, you know, Jacob and Esau, he's a descendant of Esau. Oh, the Jews don't like this. Oh, the Jews don't like this at all. And the high priest, who's the closest thing do they have to the king at this point, really doesn't like it. So he says, I don't think so. So he tries to side with some other people against Herod the Great, cost him his ears. So he could be disqualified from being a high priest, and they cost him his life. And they put in another high priest. And it was the high priest that was there when Jesus was born. His name is Annas. And Annas was mostly okay with, he saw what happened to the last guy. He's mostly okay with Herod, but he's still not okay with Herod. He gets 15 years, but he's put into forced retirement. They don't kill him, that's nice. But he's put into forced retirement, which is kind of an insult because you're supposed to be high priest till you die. So, so he's kind of like this like emeritus high priest. But he has five sons and son-in-laws, and they let his sons become high priests in their turn. But the biggest of the five is Caiaphas. Is Caiaphas. And Caiaphas has really learned a lesson. Caiaphas gets along with Rome. Caiaphas gets along with Herod. I mean, they're not buddy buddies, but they get along. And under Caiaphas' reign, lots of good things start happening. They get a bigger temple. Herod builds a spectacular temple. Rome's okay with them. Caesar's okay with them. They're freely allowed to exercise their religion. The priests are given pretty much a wide leash to rule over most of the social and religious life of Israel. When it comes to religious things, they say, take care of it. We don't care. So they have this ruling court called the Sanhedrin that the priests are in charge of. They have this impressive temple, and lots of people come to this temple from all over the world, and the priests start getting rich, rich, purple clothes, big parties, rich. They're not being killed, which is a big perk recently. In, in their minds, thanks to their political maneuvering, they have allowed Israel to worship Yahweh. Come on, guys. What more do you want? 
and in steps Jesus. He's a revolutionary. And in their minds, revolutionaries <laughs> ruin everything and mess everything up. And when they hear the kids crying, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna to the king we've been looking forward to, Sadducee's like, oh my goodness, this cannot be good. So the Sadducees finally take it upon themselves to challenge Jesus. Do you not see what you are doing? Jesus, kid, how dare you? To which Jesus pushes back, do you not see what I am doing? Priests, how dare you? And he quotes Psalm 8, which is what we read for Scripture. What Jesus quotes is, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. When we read Psalms 8, what it says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Establish strength. And Jesus is just quoting his Bible. It's the, so the, there's the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. He, he quoted the Greek translation to them. And so I read that I'm like, Establish strength or establish praise, what is it? And in the commentary, it's a word picture. It's the recognition of the work of God in Jesus expressed in the praise offered by toddlers. Like they recognize what God is doing. Toddlers. And what they're saying surpasses the strength of God's enemies the mature, the learned ones, the religious ones. Which has actually two implications. This is what Jesus is doing here. Two implications. He's calling his priests his enemies. He's calling them though, like, you have established praise in the mouth of babes and infants. You've established strength because of your foes. They're still the enemy and the avenger. You're opposing me. You are my enemy. The second implication is that the children are praising him. They're praising Jesus. In the psalm, they're praising God. And Jesus says, I accept the praise due to God. So here's this glorious moment. Jesus is trying to show them the glory of what God is doing. And all these people, these priests see, is their kingdom falling. When they should be praising God for God's kingdom coming, all they can see is their kingdom falling apart. Their safety, their security coming down. But in point of fact, that's what it takes for God's kingdom to break into your life. Jesus has to come and shatter you. Jesus has to come and call out our false worship, our false securities, our false morals. The morals are good, but like your heart is still crooked. Your false reliance on other things other than God. And where Jesus, the Messiah, has to come and flip over your tables. And he's going to do this in either two ways. He's either going to do it, and to you it will be salvation. 
because you'll accept Jesus as your Messiah, or Jesus will do it, and it will be in judgment. As I've been reflecting on the book of Matthew as a whole, and thinking a lot about this idea this week, I was talking with a brother, both of whom, he and I are well-educated, both educated, like, went to, both of us went to seminary lots of time. <clears throat> and, we, and this passage like this says, you know, you've been a Christian for a while. You know the Bible really good. You know how to speak Christianese really well. You know how to make it seem like you got your life together. But, you know, remember when you first came to Jesus? And it's because you were broken and you needed help? And somehow you've turned into, like, I'm all good now. I'm all better. Jesus, I really don't need your help anymore. I, know, I, I hear you. I heard you. I got you. The temptation is to approach the Bible, the church, and others and act as, like the Pharisees, Sadducees, that we've got it all together. We've got it figured out. When we don't, we're self-deceived. Even after all these years, We need the good news of the gospel. We need God's power and the grace of Jesus in our lives. We need God's word in our heart because we need it. Because you need it. You need to pray because you need it. You need it. So the prayer was, after this conversation, we were asking God that if we are playing the game of religion and not coming to God for help and for guidance to teach us the way that we ought to go and to save us from our sin, to save us from our fleshly desires that war against our soul day in, day out, we're just as desperate today as we are Tomorrow and day until Jesus comes fully and our sin is completely eradicated from our lives. If that happens, we asked, may the Messiah come in his glory and drive out our false worship. Jesus comes as king. He comes as a priest and he comes as a prophet and he came to die. And he came to die for our sin. And I say again, Jesus did not do that because we're okay. We're not okay. And so he has come into Jerusalem with all this excitement around him and weighing on his mind and his heart is the cross. And the joy of the cross is that he bore our sins on the cross and we know that he accomplished God's salvation because he is raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of God in glory. And so that is why we come to communion week in, week out, to recognize again our hope and our strength and our trust is fully in the blood, life, and power of Jesus Christ. So let's share together.